0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The U.S. government tried to assimilate Native Americans in the 1950s by voluntarily moving them from reservations to cities, including Denver. How one woman made a life in the city and maintained her Santee Sioux identity.
1: You don't forget your culture. You always embrace your culture. But at the same time, you have to live in this other world.
0: Plus, a Colorado climber becomes the first woman to scale a nearly sheer rock face without a rope, dealing with fear and falling.
2: The better you are at falling, the better you can
0: be at climbing. Also, they're not your usual music cues, but then again, this isn't your usual orchestra.
3: There would be written in pencil something like, fade to elephants.
0: A boulder quintet unearths and then performs music written for silent films. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. In 1952, the Bureau of Indian Affairs initiated a program to move Native Americans off reservations to cities, including Denver.
4: Why was the government so intent on moving Native people from reservations to cities and keeping them there?
0: That's Max Nestorak of American Public Media. He explores the history and effects of that program in a special report, Uprooted, the 1950s plan to erase Indian country.
4: One reason is that politicians and government workers believe Native people had to assimilate into white mainstream American society for their own good. I found a radio report from an anthropologist named Ruth Underhill, who traveled through Indian country in the 1950s. Here she is interviewing a white BIA official working on the Navajo reservation named Mel Bickle.
1: Well, I've always felt that the only real solution for the Navajo was to uh, cease to be a Navajo.
0: We'll air that APM report on Tuesday. Today, a firsthand account of what it was like to participate in the BIA's relocation program. Doris Goodteacher met me at a Denver public library after she dropped her granddaughter off at school. You were born in the Santee Sioux Reservation in Nebraska. You moved to Denver when you were 11 years old. What do you remember about life on the reservation when you were a kid?
1: Life on the reservation as I knew it It was a very close-knit community. There was good memories, you know. Um, We didn't have television. We didn't have running water. Those were challenges, obviously, you know. But in the summer, my mother planted huge gardens, huge gardens, and she canned. I mean, everything was plentiful. The other thing is that my stepfather hunted, and so there was always meat, you know. I never liked venison, but there was quail and, you know, things that are like gourmet now. And then things were focused on the Episcopal Church. What I do remember about that part of our life, though, was that It was a time when traditional practices were outlawed. And so, like I said, everything was around the church, and it was not okay to do anything traditional, like go to powwows and go to ceremonies and so on.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about that later, but I want to talk also about how you came to Denver. Your family relocated to Denver in 1956, How did your parents talk about why they decided
1: to move to Denver? My stepfather worked always as a laborer, and, you know, there was no more employment. But at that time, there was this BIA program, and my stepfather signed our family up for that. And my mother didn't want to come. My family chose Denver only because... It was closest to our reservation. So I was the oldest of seven, but there were four of us when we got here. And I remember just being in awe of the buildings. And I remember it was a two-story unit that they put us in, and there was an upstairs bedroom that overlooked the city. And at night, I think me and my mom had the hardest time, and we would be looking out there, and I hated it. I, I, you know, I hated being here. But my siblings, it was an adventure because, I mean, one of the first things they experienced was, flushing the toilet <laughs> <laughs> and, i mean they would keep flushing the to- flushing the toilet they wanted to get in the bathtub because all we had on the res was a big galvanized tub and my mother heated water in and so that was a new and, experience oh totally new and i just remember they just thought it was great but i i didn't like it what did you miss I I missed my family, I missed uh, the elders, I missed my grandparents, I missed my mom's friends that I was so close to. It was so foreign to me. I think there were several things that helped me personally. I was able to make friends in the little community that we lived in. And then the other thing that happened that I remember shortly after we came was St. John's Cathedral. The Episcopal bishop there took an interest in all of the Episcopalian Native people that were coming to the urban area. And so there began to be gatherings in the church at the cathedral. And then the early 60s or so, that Indian Center, you know, came about and other Indian organizations. And so my mom would always say, you know, well, we may be different tribes, but we always stick together. So we became involved with the Indian community at large in the city So I know the purpose of the voluntary relocation program, the
0: BIA wanted to assimilate American Indians. As you grew up, how did you and your family balance hanging on to your Santee Sioux identity and making friends in the Native community and fitting into Denver?
1: Well, I think what helped us to balance that was my grandparents were still living and we visited them. So I think that helped. And what did your grandparents tell you about what it means to be Santee Sioux? My grandma and my grandpa told me, never forget where you came from.
0: After you moved to Denver, what was it like going back to the Santee Sioux Reservation?
1: It always had a powerful, powerful draw. And it was almost like a spiritual experience. And I always felt, upon leaving there, mixed feelings about I, it was where I was from. And I was always sad about leaving my relatives, my grandma especially. I was very, very close to her. But interestingly enough... Once my grandmother died, it wasn't the same. And so she was, she was that connection.
0: Um, I know you said your family came to Denver because your stepfather, he was looking for work. Right. Um, I'm curious what kind of work he ended up doing, and do you think your parents found what they were hoping to find in Denver and in moving here?
1: I think they did. I think they did. My stepfather always did construction work, and my mother, she worked as a housekeeper, and she worked as a cook. But I think that what happened is as we became more assimilated to the city, and I know for me, um, as I became more assimilated to the city, I knew I would never go back there. I would never go back there to live, ever. Why is that? Well, it isn't the community that I knew. You know, the church no longer is the focal point of the community. There's a lot of high unemployment rates. There's a lot of substance abuse, domestic violence. And I say that because my own family experienced that. You know, I say now, you know, I'm, I'm not a good Indian. A lot of people talk about going back, going back, you know. But I know I could never go back. And then my mom, she used to say, one of these days I'm going to go back when I retire. But when it came, actually came down to it, She said, I know I can't ever go back and live there, Mm. you know, because things had changed. For the Um,
0: relocation program, I know that it's still controversial because there are certainly some positive sides that your stepdad, he found the job that he was looking for, and then there's also the obvious pain that comes with assimilation. How do you think about the program
1: now? I think now what I've learned is that A third of us stayed, a third of them went back and forth, and another third went back and never came back.
0: Went back to the reservations.
1: Right, and never came back. And so I think for some people it can work. And for those people that that it can work, I think what's critical is that That family learns to live in both worlds. You don't forget your culture. You always embrace your culture. You never escape from it. You never want to escape from it. And you want to take everything that is positive about that culture and keep that close. But at the same time, you have to live in this other world, this dominant society world.
0: And you have grandchildren in Denver now. How do you teach
1: them to live in both worlds? Well, I have three grandchildren. They always grew up going to powwows. They're learning. They want to learn. And like you said, powwows, they were illegal
0: when you were growing up. I know. I was what was it like to share that with your
1: grandkids? Oh, it's been great. I mean they love it, you know, and the first powwow I went to was in Denver. It was at St. John's Cathedral. I believe in these traditions. I believe in the stories that my great-grandmother told. I've been to sun dances now. You know, I believe in that there's good medicine and bad medicine. That's what my great-grandma used to talk about. And so those were pieces of the culture that were intertwined with the Episcopal Church. So I don't think it's a bad thing to have both those things in your life. Those are both worlds that you live in. Yes. Doris, thank you so much for
0: sharing your story. You're welcome. Doris Goodteacher moved from the Santee Sioux Nation to Denver in 1956 as a part of the Bureau of Indian Affairs Voluntary Relocation Program. Tune in to Colorado Matters on Tuesday for American Public Media's special report on the program, Uprooted, the 1950s plan to erase Indian country. When we come back, a Colorado veteran who beat the odds gets a unique way to bring attention to the sacrifices made for our country. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
3: If you have a vehicle you
4: don't want to keep and don't want to sell, consider donating it to CPR to fuel the programs you rely on. Start the easy donation process on the support page at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. If you travel through DIA in the coming week, you'll hear someone different greet you on the trains that get you to the concourses.
5: Welcome to Denver. This is Purple Heart recipient. SB winner and retired U.S. Air Force C.M.S. Sergeant Israel Del Toro. With over 21 million veterans living in America, Veterans Day is an opportunity to honor the men and women who have selflessly dedicated themselves to protecting our country. Join me in showing our debt of gratitude.
0: Master Sergeant Israel D.T. del Toro Jr. was severely burned through an explosion in Afghanistan. He overcame the odds to survive and went on to become a gold medal shot putter and the first fully disabled airman to re-enlist in the Air Force. My
6: colleague Andrea Dukakis spoke with del Toro in 2016. You've served in the Air Force around the world from Bosnia to South Korea. A roadside bomb exploded under your Humvee during your second tour in Afghanistan. That was in 2005. Explain what happened.
5: Uh, well, we're on a mission. Uh, we had orders that there was a high-value target out in the area. So we had to either uh, capture or kill him. So we're out there a couple days, and the day I got hurt, we were on our way to pick up the other half of our team. And that's when we, I, we crossed this creek, And 200 meters after we cross this creek, I feel this intense heat blast. I'm on the left side, and I realize, like, holy crap, we just got hit. People talk about how your life flashes in front of you, You know, I never believed that. But when I got hit, everything slowed down, and I just started thinking of my family, you know. Me and my wife were finally going to get married by the church. You know, we were going to go to Greece for a honeymoon and teach my boy how to play baseball. Then something clicked, and I got out of the truck. But when I got out of the truck, I was on fire from head to toe. Mm. And... But I, I realized that creek was behind me so I tried to run to it, but the flames overtook me and I collapsed and I, and I lay there thinking that I was gonna die there, that I had broken my promise that I would always come back, you know that, that I would not let my son grow up without his dad. And that's when uh, one of my teammates tells me up and we both jumped into the creek to extinguish the flames.
6: What were your injuries?
5: I looked at myself, I was like, okay, I look, I have all my fingers, I got everything. You know, I I did feel like my eyebrows were a little singed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But afterwards, after the whole thing, you know, when I woke up from my coma, I received third-degree burns on 80% of my body. You know, I lost my fingers. You know, I have nerve damage on my right foot. You know, they gave me a 15% chance to live. Uh, and told me I was going to be on a respiratory for the rest of my life and probably not walk again. And you did. I did, you know, I— I beat the odds, you know, two months after they told me that. You know, I walked out out of the hospital walking and breathing my own.
6: You accidentally saw yourself in the mirror after the explosion. Um, you hadn't wanted to see yourself so soon. What did you think when you looked in the mirror?
5: Throughout my recovery, I never had wished I'd died until I did, you know, I call that my darkest hour. I saw myself and I broke down. I really did. I really broke down. I wanted to die. I was like, God, at the time I was 30 years old, if I, if I think I'm a monster, I was like, what's my uh, three-year-old son going to think? Because you know, no father wants his child to be afraid of him. And My son meant the whole world to me. You know, He was my entire motivation. Uh, so it was a big fear for me. It really was. You know, I call him my guardian angel, Gary, uh, my therapist, and he's the one that convinced me, he's like, trust me, it's like, all your son wants is his dad. And like I said, it took about almost 40 minutes to get me back into, you know, push that back in my head saying, okay, my son just wants me. It's like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid.
6: And when you saw your son, uh, talk about that. It's a great story when you first saw him. Yeah, you know, uh, when I
5: got out of the hospital and you know, I walked into the house, you know, I remember seeing my family members, some of my teammates and... Then my wife calling out to my son saying, hey, you know, dad's here. And he comes running out. And he stops. And I get scared. Because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still covered up in bandages and all that. And I'm thinking, it's like, oh, my God, he's afraid. He's afraid. He's not going to want to hold me or anything. But he just tilts his head to the left and I says, papi. And I'm like, yeah, buddy. And just comes up and gives me the most amazing hug I've ever had in my life. I hadn't seen them since August of 2005.
6: You'd competed in the Invictus Games, which is an international competition for wounded servicemen and women, and you won gold in shot put for the second time. Invictus means unconquered. And I understand you had never done shot put before. How did you learn?
5: When you're going through recovery, they introduce you to adaptive sports because most of us were athletes at some point. So they introduced you to Adaptive Sports to kind of get you back out into society, get you going. And they introduced track and field to me, you know, throwing. You know, it just worked out that I was able to do it.
6: What does it mean to you? What did, did it mean to you to win the gold medal in the Invictus Games?
5: Well, for me, you know, winning that gold was almost too emotional, I guess, to explain because it, it just felt so great. It's such an amazing feeling. To be there with all these other service members from different countries, rooting me on, and then my family and strangers rooting me on and Pedro, to, to have them there with me and seeing me win, and seeing me receive that gold was just an amazing feeling.
6: You played team sports like baseball while you were growing up, and I wonder why sports have always played such a key role in your life.
5: Sports have always helped me throughout my journey in life. You know, from losing my parents. Team sports were there for me, you know, kept me focused, kept me on what I needed to do. And, you know, my teammates, they were there for me, helped me through my tough times in life. So being able to do sports and know they can still be outside enjoying life is a very uh, comforting thing.
6: Competing with your injuries, living with your injuries, can't always be easy. Uh, Is there anything that helps you to stay positive, move forward, keep competing? Uh, The
5: main thing for me that keeps me going is really my son. It truly is my my boy, because I want to show him that you know, no matter what happens, if you stay positive, stay motivated you could overcome whatever obstacles that have come forward. And it's a promise also that I made to my dad uh, before he passed away that I always would take care of my family. And doing that, you know, showing my son that is my way of taking care of my
6: family. DT, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you for having me, ma'am.
0: CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaking with Master Sergeant Israel D.T. del Toro Jr. in 2016. His voice greets travelers on the trains at Denver International Airport through next Friday, November 22nd. Singing spirituals was a form of respite and rebellion during times of slavery in America. This weekend, a Denver choir honors the history of that music in a special concert called O Freedom." Benny L. Williams' Spiritual Voices is named for its founder, a woman known to her friends as Miss Benny. At a rehearsal for the upcoming concert, she spoke about her connection to the music of African slaves.
1: I grew up in Marshall, Texas, so I knew former slaves. So I, my connection to the spirituals is having known people who were slaves and going down to an area in Marshall known as the Slave quarters. Where people who performed as slaves would get together and sing the spirituals. And that's the way I learned about the spirituals, and I learned the stories of the people who sang those songs.
0: The concert coincides with the release of the first feature film dedicated to Harriet Tubman. One of the pieces that will be performed is a choral tribute to her. Clarice McCoy sings alto in the choir. She expressed
1: deep gratitude for what Tubman did. I could never say thank you enough. It has made life better for me, even though there are still walls and things that are being erected around this race of people.
0: Singing these spirituals reminds McCoy of her childhood in Alabama when the music served as respite for her family and neighbors after a long day of chores. At night,
1: after everything is done, we would uh, sit on our porches, however along the block, and then after a while you would hear somebody sing a song. It would go from house to house to house to house, and everybody would chime in and we would sing those songs until we decided it was bedtime.
0: Williams' spiritual voices singing Go Down Moses at a rehearsal for their concert Oh Freedom. It takes place Saturday at the Shorter Community AME Church. When Colorado Matters continues, what climbing without ropes says about facing fear, and why falling can make someone a better climber. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. Some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact. See if your company matches on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Huge quartz boulders called the Buttermilk slide just outside of Bishop, California. Climbers call the nearly sheer face of one of these boulders too big to flail. It rises 50 feet into the air. Nina Williams of Boulder, Colorado, climbed it without ropes earlier this year. She's the first woman to complete this free climb. The documentary about her achievement, The High Road, is part of this year's international Real Rock Film Tour, and it's showing in Denver today. Nina, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. These are really tall, bouldering problems. They're sometimes called highballs. You've climbed a lot of them. On several, you've been the first woman to make it to the top. What is it that you love about climbing high above the ground without ropes?
2: You know, there's just something about that sense of control and management of fear, because if I was up there without any ropes and I was feeling scared, then it wouldn't be a place where I should be at all. But because, you know, I build on my experience and years in climbing, uh, I'm able to become familiar with my sense of fear and manage it in a way that pushes me through the climb instead of holding me back.
0: And climbing to heights where you can't fall safely, I imagine that's as much of a mental challenge as a physical one. Tell me more about how you manage that fear.
2: It's a few different steps, but essentially I identify what that fear feels like to me within my body. So how it feels in my mind and in my heart, what it's doing to my hands and my legs. You know, I'm a little shaky or out of breath. Um, I can feel my heartbeat in my ears. So I personalize it to myself. I acknowledge that the fear is a part of me and always will be. But then I'm able to depersonalize it by separating myself from the fear. So I look at my fear as this physical thing that I can sort of take away, you know, and place it outside of my body and look at it and say, hey, I hear you, I see you, I sense you, but I don't have to let you hold me back.
0: So it's not about getting rid of fear. It's just about kind of putting it in context. Exactly. Yes, because fear is something
2: that everyone has. Um, it's a natural instinct that's a part of all of us. And we'll never be able to completely get rid of fear. But the more we can acknowledge the fear and recognize it in ourselves, then you know we bring it into the light and make it into something we can control.
0: And as you're thinking about that mental challenge, do you climb it to overcome the fear, or do you climb and realize that you had a fear to overcome? So I never climb to overcome the fear. I
2: really climb because I want to become familiar with my fear and to accept it as a part of myself. So it's not a matter of, you know, like ignoring it or overcoming it in this way. It's, it's about making it a part of me and, and being okay with that.
0: So this recent climb, Too Big to Flail, you actually heard about it at a Real Rock film tour several years ago. Alex Honnold was the first to climb it in 2012, and you saw a documentary. Here's what you said about it in your Real Rock film, The High Road. My heart was in my throat. How can he do that? That's
2: just totally nuts. Never did I think, oh, maybe I could
0: do that one day. How did you go from thinking, that's nuts, to I'm going to climb that? (laughs)
2: Well, the first time I ever went to Bishop, California and laid eyes on Too Big to Flail for the first time, I was just blown away by the beauty of the climb. And I'm very aesthetically driven, so if I see something that's visually appealing, uh, it really inspires me. So I really went from, you know, climbing all of these highballs, uh, gaining that experience, and then seeing too big to flail in person for the first time and thinking, oh, wow, it's just such a beautiful climb. And even if I never send it without ropes, you know, it doesn't even matter <laughs> if I do the climb. I just want to be on that rock and and at least attempt it.
0: It's easy to imagine that climbing highballs is about just being good enough that you don't fall. But that's actually not what you say in the high road. You describe this fall off of evolution direct, and that's a 30-foot climb. I'm at the lip, and I've got this heel hook. And I remember
2: everything happening in slow motion. I saw my knee coming up straight towards my face. But at the last second, I moved my knee out of the way. So I was totally fine. I know how to fall well. I could orient myself in space and control my landing. Tell me about learning how to fall. (laughs) Well, the best way to learn how to fall is to just do it a lot (laughs) and repetitively and consistently. So I have a couple of rules about falling. Uh, specific to bouldering in that when you fall, contrary to what a lot of people think, you know, they're like, oh, don't look down. But the first thing you want to do is look down because you focus on a point on the ground and you can sort of like orient your body around that one focal point. And then the next step is to try and relax your body as much as possible because when we stiffen up, that's when things get broken or sprained. So, you know, you look down, pick a landing spot on the ground, and then try and fall into the ground as softly and relaxed as possible. Climbing is really more falling than climbing anyways. So the better you are at falling, then the better you can be at climbing. Have you gotten hurt climbing? Knock on wood, I haven't had any serious injuries related to falls. Uh, I got a little bit of whiplash on that one uh, on evolution. Um, And I've gotten some finger injuries, et cetera, but nothing too serious.
0: Before you free climb those tall bouldering problems, you practice these routes with ropes. Um, For Too Big to Flail, do you know how many times you rehearsed that route?
2: Yes. So I worked on it a total of probably like eight days overall. I like worked on it for two days in 2018 and then came back in 2019 and worked on it for another like five or six days. And then I climbed it cleanly, meaning without falling, from bottom to top about four or five times total. So once I reached that limit, or once I reached that point, then I knew that I could climb it um, without ropes.
0: And so it's that rehearsal and knowing that you can climb it clean, that's how you knew you were ready to do it for real, free climb it. Exactly. What was the feeling when you were on the wall without ropes in a place where falling was really not an option?
2: I mostly just had a feeling of flow and focus. It's this really magical mindset where I'm completely in the present moment. I'm not thinking about the past and the work I put into it, but I'm also not thinking about the future and what might happen. You know, I'm not thinking about whether I might fall or whether my foot might slip, etc. I'm just focused on how my body is moving and how my breathing is feeling, and it's almost like a very meditative state.
0: So that feeling of control you were talking about. Exactly, yes. Do you remember the view when you reached the top?
2: Yes, I do. It was a really beautiful sunny day. And I just remember there being a lot of sunlight and warmth all around me. And also this feeling of lightness in my chest. I mean, the scenery in Bishop is so beautiful, it's really hard to beat. And I just remember feeling surrounded by this extreme feeling of happiness.
0: Now, you're working on a different challenge. Um, you dropped out of college nine years ago to pursue climbing, but you just started classes again at CU Boulder this fall. How are you adjusting?
2: It's awesome. I, I really, truly enjoy it, and I never thought I would, I would say that about school. Um, it's a different change of tack, and it's a little overwhelming at times, and it's a lot of work, but uh, I'm, I'm truly loving it. Yeah.
0: The way you talk about climbing, it sounds like such a mental challenge. Do you take those same sorts of approaches to your schoolwork? I do. And
2: that's one of the main reasons why I decided to go back to school is because there's so many parallels between the lessons in climbing and the lessons in life. And I accomplished these goals in climbing that I never thought I would. So I thought, you know what, I can do the same in school. I told myself for so long I was never a classroom learner and that I just wasn't cut out for formal education, but those are just limits that I placed on myself.
0: How do you draw those parallels? Because I know there are obviously fears in life, but many of them are not quite as adrenaline-pumping fears. How do you draw the parallels in the challenges you're facing right now?
2: Well, you say that life is not full of adrenaline-pumping fears, but life has a lot of fear overall. And the type of fear that I experience in climbing is not very different from those in regular life. I mean, there's a lot of doubt, uncertainty, Uh, limitations that we place on ourselves, and being able to look at those fears in life, such as the one when I approached school, when I essentially told myself that I was not smart enough for school. I just sort of personalize it to myself. I acknowledge that I'm thinking that, and I embrace the frustration that it causes me. But then I decide to pursue these steps to manage that fear and depersonalize it. In that, I think, okay, you know, this little voice that tells me I can't do these things, it's fine. It's been around for a while, but I just really don't have to listen to it. And I can take these additional steps to to go against
0: it. So still a lot of mindfulness. Do you have a next big climbing project in mind?
2: Um, you know, I'm sort of keeping it chill for right now. Uh, I've been trying to balance my climbing with my school and uh, relationships and friendships and all that stuff so i'm trying to stay fit and psyched on training and i've got some things on the horizon but nothing quite in particular
0: nina thank you so much for having this conversation yeah thanks avery it's been a pleasure in march nina williams of boulder colorado became the first woman to scale without ropes too big to flail a 50-foot climb in California. A short film about that climb, The High Road, is touring internationally as a part of Real Rock 14. It will be screened in 40 countries. It's playing at the Oriental Theater in Denver Friday. When we come back, it's as much a part of silent movies as the movies themselves. But sheet music from that era is starting to disappear. We'll talk with a Colorado musician working to save songs like this. this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR's active community of support has allowed CPR News to increase coverage of our state, CPR Classical to reach more of Colorado, and Indy 1023 to deliver the best in new and local music. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill.
4: And I'm Ryan Warner. Sheet music from the silent film era is disappearing, and a Colorado musician is working to save it. Rodney Sauer discovered a vast collection of silent film scores in CU Boulder's library. It inspired him to form the Montalto Motion Picture Orchestra. The quintet tours theaters across the country to accompany silent films. Bauer is once again working with CU to preserve the scores he's collected, and his orchestra accompanies 1921's The Phantom Carriage on Sunday in Boulder. And Rodney, welcome back to the program. Certainly. Let's get this straight. Silent Films uh, had no speaking track. They had no music track Either so, explain
3: how this works. So the way it worked, it was a it was an industry. The films would were made in Hollywood or Europe or wherever, and they were sent to the theaters. And then the theaters had to come up with the music. So if you saw the same movie in a hundred different theaters, you might hear a hundred different scores. It was similar to the way. If you see a play, you don't expect to see the same sets and costumes in every theater. That is a thing that's done locally. And in the silent film era, the music was done locally.
4: So I'm picturing one film being released, and then composers all across the country
3: sort of scrambling to write scores yeah you don't actually write the scores um because there isn't time as you can imagine because you're imagining this it it's difficult but like i said it was an industry and so if you were in a very small theater and you were playing piano you might just make up stuff as you watch the screen and this is something that that a lot of people still do it's an improvisatory style but it doesn't work for larger groups so if you have a you know There would be multiple theaters in a town, and they'd compete on the quality of music they provide. So some might have a small orchestra, and you can't write music for that. You can't improvise. So you would keep a library of printed music that's not for any particular film. It's for scenes. And so you would just pull the scenes, the music that you need for your film. So damsel in distress. Right. Yeah, or a storm scene or a sword fight or an avalanche or a volcano eruption there there are the pieces that were published often have subtitles that indicate what they're used for i wonder if if there is a part of you that mourns the loss of all that was created extemporaneously in other words there wasn't sheet music for those moments oh it would be lovely to go see some of these performances but yeah they're just they'll go off into the ether it's like a it's like a jazz session yeah. that wasn't recorded you know they, it's just gone Were these composers very well known? Not usually. They were very well um, represented in performances, but their names didn't get out there unless you were the musician. You would see it on the page. But if you were in the audience, there might be 35 pieces in a film score, and they're all by different people, and so there was no way to give them credit. So the, the credit sort of came in how long did their pieces stay in print, how often were they used.
4: Right, how often were they used along with any storm scene, for instance. Right, exactly. Yeah. And oh.
3: I, I recently looked through my catalog, and I have about 24 different storm musics. So <laughs> I, have, I don't have to use the same storm music every time. But, it, you know, eventually, if you do enough films, you'll start, re- you know, reusing some pieces. And that's that's how they were designed to be used. They were paid well. I think they were. They did okay. Um, They. That's a good question. Uh, I don't know of any records of the publishing companies that have that. On the other hand, um, you know, some of the people that I have studied, they did fine. They had nice houses in in Cleveland, and then moved to Los Angeles and worked in the Hollywood film industry there. Got. To play in New York City, got to conduct. So if if you were a good composer, you got you got a, a good career out of it. You moved to Boulder to get a master's degree in
4: wait for it, chemistry. Right? Yeah. And one day you were digging through the CU library. Tell us what happened there that you know changed your life. Yeah, someone life.
3: had alerted me they had this this music there, and I had a little group that at the time, was called the Montalto Ragtime and Tango Orchestra. And we played for Ballroom Dancing. And someone said, you should check out this new collection. It's from that era. And I went up and, it, you know, it it had a lot of ragtime. It had a lot of waltzes and tangos. But it also had all this silent film music. And I'd never heard of this before. I'd never encountered it before.
4: Now, how did you know it was silent film music?
3: Uh, because the titles of the pieces, uh, one of the most obvious was there was a piece they had called three themes from the film Beaugest. Okay. And I thought, okay, hey, there's a movie called Beaugest. And uh, these are three other pieces that were composed with that in mind. Um, and then other ones would be like Allegro Vigoroso for sword fights. You know, and you're not going to use that at a, at a ballroom <laughs> for a sword fight. No, it, it was fairly clear that it was for silent films. And also sometimes at the top of the page, you were written in pencil. The cue that the owner of this collection looked for in the screen. So there would be written in pencil uh, something like, Fade to Elephants, or... Uh, you know, fight starts. And that or, was like
4: re-syncing the exactly. live so, instrumentation with what was going on.
3: Yeah. So you, the next piece coming up has that written at the top. And so you're watching for that to come up on the screen. Hmm. And then when it comes up, then that's when you start that piece. And we still use that technique today. If you come down and look at our score, um, you'll see us, you know, written at the top of the page is uh, what do you look for when you start this piece?
4: You were, I suppose, enchanted at this
3: discovery. Yes, because I'd never heard of it before. And it was the the music is actually quite good. And almost no one was playing it. There were several people around the country and around the world, but it was really on the order of three or four people who were using this music and mostly using it in local performances, which is exactly how it was intended to be used.
4: Right. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about the world, some of it disappearing of silent film scores. This is a world that Rodney Sauer has uh, dedicated years now to after discovering that this music exists. Uh, he is the founder of the Mont Alto Motion Picture Orchestra, a quintet based in Boulder, which travels the country playing this music live as it was back in the day. Here's what puzzles me. Some of the scores you've found date back to the 1880s. That precedes... What we think of as the age of film, right? Right. Oh, yes. So,
3: what? <laughs> explain this. Well, film music, even with the with the first film music, didn't come out of nowhere. It was based on the music that was played in live theater. So, there was a, a you know genre of plays called melodramas. And people would—these would be touring companies that would go around and present a play. People would go to the play. Sometimes the play had an orchestra, and the orchestra would play short bits between scenes. So during a scene change, they'd close the curtain. They'd be working on changing the scene. The orchestra would play something that would want to lead the audience into the next piece. Oh, how lovely. And— Often these same theaters were the places where movies were first shown because there was already a theater and you could show movies there after the play maybe or on nights when the play was dark. And so the same orchestra would be there. And so they would use this music. One of the collections I came across came from Rhode Island. And this was a a musical director who had obviously been in the business from long before films. So he had some pieces from the 1880s. There were some uh, dance music that were gavots and lancers quadrilles and we're you know we're going back almost to the civil war with some of this music
4: oh my goodness but the tradition carries on from exactly.
3: stage to screen and this director kept that music because you never know what's going to be useful you don't throw stuff away what are some of your favorite silent film scores Well, you know, I I always like the ones I've done recently. (laughs) So the one we're showing on Sunday, I love the music for that. I think it came together very nicely. Yeah,
4: so this is The Phantom Carriage, a 1921 Swedish film. What what do you think the score provides for this particular film, and maybe tell us a little bit more about the Phantom Carriage?
3: Sure. The film is kind of a a fantasy fairy tale with a theological overtone, so it's. Wait, about, let me get this: a yeah. fantasy fairy tale with a little God injected? Is that what I'm hearing? Sure, and definitely morality and redemption. The Phantom Carriage is this mystic old rattle trap horse cart that goes around the world and collects people as they die, takes their souls and carries them off. We don't really know where. But the idea is that the phantom carriage driver, he has this job. Which is to be there as each person dies, and you know it, it mentions this takes a long time. It's like you spend the year doing this, and you've spent a couple hundred years, you know, driving this carriage around. So there's this kind of weird thing. It's done with these very sophisticated uh, double exposures. So you see a scene, and then the phantom people will come in, and you can see through them. And we're kind of used to that now. It was actually tricky to do this the back in deal. the silent era. Yeah, because yeah. you had to do it all in the same in the camera. You'd have to film one scene. wind the film back, film the other scene, and hope that it comes out okay. What happened
4: to silent film music after Talkies debuted in, what, about the 1920s?
3: Yeah, well, a lot of people lost their jobs, as you can imagine. Um, I've seen one estimate that maybe 30,000 musicians were fired when the Talkies came in because you didn't need them anymore. And it was one reason the Talkies were popular was that it saved the theater owners a lot of money in music. Right, there weren't a bunch of live performers to pay. Right, exactly. So what do you do with the music? Well, maybe the music director takes it home. Maybe the music director throws it away. Fortunately, some of them kept it. The collection that I first came across, the um, Al Layton, who had put this music together, he sort of changed careers, and he became a high school music teacher, and he used some of this music in his high school orchestras. Mm. So do you think that there are just troves
4: of this Waiting to be discovered in, you know, basements? There and may be.
3: There may be. I've come now across, I think, five different collections and some of them were being thrown away. Some of them, you know, were previously th- being thrown away and someone else rescued them and then they've sort of gone from hand to hand. One reason we're doing this show this weekend is in celebration of um, <laughs> of me donating a very large collection to CU Boulder.
4: Yes, because your work now is to preserve this stuff and right. to
3: make sure that others know of its existence. Right, and to try to make it available and see if we can get other people doing this. Because it used to be so prevalent, I think there is room for more musicians to use this material. I also think that there
4: is a craving in our digital age... For analog experiences, for kind of Mm in-person experiences. And it strikes me that maybe the young person who loves to put on vinyl right now would also like the
3: experience of seeing a film with live orchestration. Yes, exactly. And and that has it has been coming back a bit. The San Francisco Silent Film Festival that we go to every year expands every once in a while to an additional day. Now it lasts about five days, and they show movies pretty much back to back. And there's a big festival in Italy, and there's a lot of interest in this. And the other thing is that modern digital... Uh, technology, even though we just talked about analog, uh-huh. um, has been very good for restoring old films because sometimes these films are on their old prints. They've shrunk over time. You can't even run them through projectors, but you can get them on a scanner, make a very high resolution scan. If there are several prints that survive, you can get the best scenes that survive in each of these prints and you can then make a, a you know, try to get as close as you can to the quality of the image that you saw. So there is the the, pr- the preservation
4: post. of the film and the preservation of the score that accompanies them. Well, this has been fascinating. Rodney, break a leg this weekend and thanks for being with us. Certainly.
0: Rodney Sauer leads the Mont Alto Motion Picture Orchestra. He spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. The orchestra performs Sunday at CU Boulder, playing a live score from the 1921 silent film The Phantom Carriage. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Avery Lil. This is CPR News.